Thanks for tuning in to Mystic Witch. I'm your host, Blue. You can find out more about me at bluejunetarot.com. Mystic Witch is a podcast about magic, divination, and all things supernatural. Hey, Mystic Witches. Today we are here with Philip English, who is a second generation neo-pagan. And he began his study of the Elder Futhark, Runecraft, and Norse magic at the age of nine under the tutelage of his father. Simply put, his praxis is that of the Vitki, or Norse magician. As one of the co-founders of Catlin Books in Brooklyn, he has had the privilege of experiencing the legion that are the streams of magical practice as they manifest in NYC, the crossroads of the world. His work has led him to learn from and interact with a wide array of respected elders, authors, and authorities in the field, and he has earned a reputation as a highly talented rune reader and ritual performance artist. He is a proud member of a thriving metaphysical community of students and seekers after wisdom and seeks to facilitate his fellow aspirants in their pursuit of light. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> so good to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, and it's really great to be here. Yes. So what is the magical tool you use the most, and how do you use it? So I think the magical tool I use the most is, is mead, is, is fermented honey, um, and then probably secondary honey itself in general. Um, uh, the, I'm fascinated by the, the substance and, and the... Uh, spiritual history of honey as sort of the, the food of the gods and mead as the drink of the gods. And I use mead to enter into trance states, to, to, to invoke inspiration, to toast, to honor my ancestors. I carve runes over the mead with my finger and then I ingest them and, and, and invoke uh, the, the mysteries via the medium that, that mead provides. That's amazing. Yeah. That's such a good answer. I'm glad you like that. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 you got to be careful advocating it because some people probably shouldn't drink magically too much. Uh, but for me, it, it's definitely a, a, a spiritual uh, tool of mediation between myself and the divine. Okay. Well, you were saying that in your late teens, you were obliged by Odin to pursue magical knowledge, and then you began an earnest study of the myriad streams of magical practice and spiritual philosophy throughout the world. Uh, what were the traditions? Um, so I primarily focused on ceremonial magic, uh, sort of the limic streams of hermeticism, uh, worked with a little bit of chaos magic as well, uh, but Mostly Western Hermeticism. Yeah. Yeah. So can you explain what those are and what sure. makes them different? Sure. This could be a podcast unto itself, so I'm going to be very brief. Uh, I, I felt earnestly, especially in my late teens and early 20s, that it was my job to learn as much about magic as I could. And the streams that I had ingress or, or access to uh, most easily were Western streams. Um, you, you know, I didn't necessarily want to colonize uh, uh, non-Western traditions. And so we have Western Hermeticism, which is kind of my blanket term for all of those 
schools and orders and traditions that come to us from the kind of Renaissance Christian appropriation of Kabbalah that <laughs> gives us the, the very popular uh, ordering tool of the, the Kabbalistic tree of life. So th- th- things influenced by the Golden Dawn, uh, Dion Fortune, and then uh, in my early 20s, I met a man who became one of my greatest spiritual teachers. He's, he's no longer with us on this earth. Uh, his name was Bill. Uh, and he was very much a, a badass uh, Thelemite uh, and, and kind of fly by the seat of your pants invoking Egyptian gods in the middle of swamps in Orlando, Florida kind of dude. Um, and so uh, at the time, you know, you have options to, to practice magic as, as somebody who, who goes into, say, like a Golden Dawn temple where everything is very controlled and ornate and, and uh, um, there's lots of interesting toys and accessories that have bright colors on them. And out of that st- same uh, stream of hermetic influence, you have what I was experiencing with Bill, which is um, you get your sword. It doesn't have to be painted a specific color. You get your altar tools, and you and you just make stuff happen, and you and you call in energy whenever you can, and and invoke uh, liberatory forces. <laughs> uh, in his case, usually in opposition to uh, Christian tyranny. Ooh, yeah. that sounds like a really fascinating mentor to have. Yeah, just, a yeah. little bit zany, a little yeah. bit wackadoo, yeah. swamp stuff. <laughs> it sounds really fun. Yeah, actually. yeah, really cool guy. So you're also an initiate of Ordo Templi Orientis and the Blue Lodge degrees of Freemasonry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can tell you everything that's not secret. <laughs> <laughs> or I'd uh, have to kill you. Yeah, yes, we'd, we'd have to kill you. Um, I was on a quest. I think, I think it helps to frame it like that. I was on a quest. I felt that my God had told me to initiate and to learn magic. And... Uh, at a business where I worked, you know, the, the Freemasons are not supposed to recruit, but uh, a number of Freemasons at the time when I decided, okay, I'm going to go out and find the magicians, started just hanging out in front of the cash register at the shop I was running with their, with their um, not their regalia, but their jewels on, with their Masonic um, uh, pendants on. And they would just stand and kind of stare at me until I would ask them questions. And I was like, tell me what's going on. Like, you guys are clearly Freemasons, <laughs> and you're here, like, every other day just kind of hanging out. And I said, yeah, are you interested? And I said, heck, yeah, I'm interested. And, and so I did the Blue Lodges, which is, or the Blue Lodge degrees, which are the, the first three degrees of Freemasonry. Um, and in short, it's a, it's a men's mysteries organization. Uh, masonry... As I see it, is primarily focused now in, in the world uh, as a as a social and charitable organization, doing good works for brothers and those in need, and yet it has an initiatory structure that is built on the Western Hermetic tradition as well as the Rosicrucian tradition, as well as uh, uh, classical Western philosophy and then Enlightenment era uh, moral uh, virtue teachings, and. Uh, at about the same time, I started hanging out with the, uh, the Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO, which are kind of like, well, 
I, I want to do them justice, but they party a bit harder than Freemasons. I'll say that. <laughs> and, and they're co-ed. Uh, I, 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 I sort of fell in love with that order kind of coming out of Freemasonry and then realizing there was a, a quasi-Masonic order that um, was structured around the lines of, of, of Thelemic principles, the, the spiritual, uh, magical, religious system of Alistair Crowley. And uh, they were co-ed. They let women in. They let all genders in. And uh, they were focused on sort of finding light through the uh, liberation and sovereignty of the individual as, as, a, as a star among stars on their own orbit. And, and yeah, I, I fell in love with that order. I took initiations into it. Uh, I'm still active with it today. I was going to ask. Right. Thank you. And it, and it gave me room um, to work my own magic primarily, which is runes. The, I, I describe the runes as sort of my operating system with other magical um, practices being kind of, uh, in the computer metaphor, being other programs I load up for, for other applications. But the fundamental system that defines my magical reality is runic. Okay. So are you going to tell us the story about Odin? Sure. <laughs> I was, well, I, I got to start with just saying I was raised in a, in a, pagan household. My dad was a single father and um, involved in primarily Wicca, uh, but sometime in the 80s dedicated himself to doing runic magic. So he, he I don't want to oversell it because prior to the internet, our resources were very slim. So Ralph Bloom's Book of Runes, which is very popular and very wonky and uh, historically inaccurate, you know, oh, it's no. definitely around it because this is every it's like everybody's first rune book because it's on it's perennially available at Barnes and Noble for a dollar. It's in like the dollar book bin, um, and it comes with a with a uh, like clay set of runes, which I. Think it's, I think it's good that people get access to it, but I find it abhorrent because I'm like, these runes, they should be in wood uh, or, or stone maybe, but preferably some sort of wood uh, that, that bears fruit. Anyway, so we have access to all of this literature and, and interaction with the runes from childhood. It was my dad. We, we would give each other rune readings since I was nine years old and, and, and study them, read in them, write in them, write each other notes in runes, uh, the Elder Futhark, primarily. Uh, but then, as I got older, I became an adolescent, became a teen, you start rebelling, the things your parents are into aren't very cool. Uh, so it's like uh, all of this Norse, the Norse gods stuff. First of all, as a, as a child, viewing these things as myths felt sort of separate, and, and I still feel this, like when people, uh, over-mythologize the Norse gods, Thor, Odin, uh, Freya, and kind of treat them as, as very anthropomorphic people that are parts of stories. There seems to be a, a, a distance from the actual mystical connection that you can have with these entities that manifest culturally as, as something that, that comes to us, or comes to me, uh, via Norse myth, uh, but that exist beyond the structure of culture and the stories that people made. Um, I think that the divine influenced stories that people made 
but when we encapsulate them in uh, just as like, okay, well, this is like the Vikings TV show, or, or this is, this is um, uh, something specifically for Scandinavian people, um, it becomes distant from the actual religious element, the, the, the ecstasies that I later felt when... At the age of 19, <laughs> uh, after having kind of distanced myself from what I considered increasingly just kind of silly myths, uh, I had an experience unlike any other I've had in my entire life. I was laying in bed, um, had my eyes closed, and suddenly I started seeing flashing, vibrant color everywhere, right? Like, like it was like an acid trip or something, but I wasn't on acid. <laughs> and I saw lights and I, my consciousness moved to something that was beyond my body, and I realized in, in, in my wonderment at dazzling light that this was both the astral plane and that this was the Bifrost Bridge, that I, this was the Rainbow Bridge, and, and that the Rainbow Bridge doesn't look like an actual rainbow. It is, that is the metaphor we use for whatever the plane is that's full of light and color. And with that realization, I felt the profound sense that I was in the presence of the divine. I felt the profound sense that I had encountered Heimdall, uh, who, who, who uh, guards the world of men and, and, and keeps, and is, is the father of uh, social structure and, and keeps watch over the Rainbow Bridge. It, it became to me, the realization that, wait, this isn't a myth, this, this is actually an astral entity that, that, that guards this doorway into somewhere else. And when I realized that... Man, it's the emperor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when I realized that, I came face to face, for lack of a better word, because these things were so weirdly hard to describe. I, I came face to face with what I can only call the divine. And it left me with no doubt in that moment that there actually is something, for lack of a better word, I would call, like, God. Um, that term has a lot of baggage with it, I think because of Christianity and other faiths that have you know, screwed around with people. Um, Absolutely. But in that moment, I felt powerful God consciousness, and for some reason, God was manifesting itself to me as Odin, the All-Father. The, the Lord of the Runes, uh, the God of inspiration and poetry and magic. <laughs> and just briefly, I had that knowledge, and I opened my eyes, and I was back in my room, but with this new sort of connection to, to something divine that I had not experienced previously, even being raised a pagan, right? Going to Wiccan stores my whole life and, mm. and going to festivals and, and throwing runes around. Hadn't experienced anything like that before or since. And I felt a profound gratitude and a mission from whatever that experience was. I, 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 it's, you know, cliche, but it's like, what, did, what was that about? What does it mean? Well, it really sounds shamanic. Really? Honestly. So? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I feel like a lot of people who are called to that path have similar experiences, yeah. and sometimes it is a one-time thing. Dude, and, I, I've tried to replicate it, and I can't. And even even if I, uh, 
don't know if this is allowed to say on your show, but even via psychedelics, right? Like yeah. heroic doses of psychedelics. I've gotten close, but not to that. And it's it's only happened once, but it changed my life. And I walked away from that experience going, I'm pretty sure I was just told to learn all the magic I can. I don't know why, but it just was my mission. It, this this is so... Doing magic, practicing sorcery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, learning... Uh, seeking after that wisdom feels like a spiritual devotion to the God that revealed itself to me. Mm. And just for the record, um, some of that experience, uh, there, there are types of epilepsy that um, people have experienced, you know, like the stories of Van Gogh, I think it's like frontal lobe epilepsy, uh, that, that gives people similar experiences, like flashing lights, things like that. Mm. I've been checked out, I don't have that. <laughs> I've been, I've been <laughs> cat scanned all, 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 all over. I got myself as soon as possible into therapy to go like, am I schizophrenic? Right? Like, of because course. this happened and we got to talk about it. Well, and you're an, ab- you're such a pragmatic person. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised at all that that was your first like right. science. What are we doing? Yeah. And <laughs> the interesting thing, I've been checked out six ways to Sunday. I've been cat scanned my brain. I'm not an epileptic. Uh, no shrink will ever tell me or has ever told me uh, that, that I am schizophrenic. Um, I get a little anxious, but that's about it. It was your calling. (laughs) You got called, man. Thank you. So you were like, hello, who is this? (laughs) Oh, Odin, no big deal. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what to make of it. it. It just happened. And then I decided that I would go all in on Particularly the runes. You kind of didn't have a choice after that. (laughs) You really don't. No, you don't. (laughs) That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It's wild and amazing. It's crazy. Um, So just to move things along, you have given lectures, talks, and classes on various topics, focusing on ritual magic, Norse magical traditions, spirituality in everyday life, the occult, and the history of esoteric societies. Right. So can you tell us more about your history with teaching and what you're moving into? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of when did I start? <laughs> and I don't actually know the answer to that. Because it, I, I think it starts as many people in our community start where you get into this. And in my case, I'd been reading runes since I was a kid. But after this experience when I'm 19, um, then you start reading for your friends. I think that's where everybody starts. And then you start anybody who will listen being telling them what, what you know, if it can help them, <laughs> possibly annoying some of your friends, going like, hey, did you, did, you can leave your body, and there's an astral plane, and, and you can go, and you can change things, right? Um, <laughs> or I can, I can predict future outcomes based on what falls for the runes. Um, and starts with that. You end up collecting books. You end up having too many books and wanting to sell them, so you open up a bookstore. <laughs> this might be specific to your story. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's my story. So then we opened up a shop. I, I opened up a shop uh, in Brooklyn, and people started asking me what I knew and through OTO uh, as an order it's 
one of my favorite things about it is they really encourage uh, initiates, brethren, to teach, even sometimes getting outside of their comfort zone. So um, sometimes you'll see people giving a class at the OTO who, who may not be experts in a, in a subject. Mm. And online, sometimes you'll be like, who, who is this person? Why are they teaching tarot? They, they don't know what they're talking about. But I think the upside of that, with that order, which helped me kind of get my sea legs as yeah. somebody teaching uh, occult subjects, is that they'll, they'll throw you in front of people and say, look, like, we're, we're not coming to be an expert here, but if you want to come to a class that's well-researched and you know, sit through the PowerPoint and the discussion and, and, and uh, grow together, uh, you have an organization that gives you that opportunity. And so the OTO gave me that opportunity. And, uh, I love that. And I would have to back up and say, that's probably where I really started teaching, but amongst trusted brethren. Uh, but... When it comes to speaking to the public, it starts at my the, the bookstore I founded in, in Brooklyn. People coming in and asking me, people asking me to sit in on panels. Mm. And uh, slowly but surely, you start to see that people are diver- deriving value from what you're teaching. I was absolutely one of those people who would come in and just kind of like, hello, yeah. <laughs> what information can I get from you today? <laughs> I came regularly too, so thank you for all of that. And I love I love that idea of the OTO almost almost requiring students to teach because right. you don't really know anything until you put together a lecture. Right. You, that's how you really really learn something, and at yeah. least in my experience. So I I see that value. Yeah. That's huge. That's amazing. I would be careful. You know, I can't speak for the. I'm not a mouthpiece for the OTO. I'm I'm just a just a member. That's fair. Um, and I wouldn't say they require it. Okay. But boy, do they encourage it and give you the space to do it if you really want to. That's and, amazing. And that's, that's really cool. That's really great. So, uh, what are we moving on to? I guess, what are runes? What are runes? <laughs> I love this question. Um, typically, when people think of what runes are, they think of the pictogram representations of letters of the various uh, Old Norse and Anglo-Saxon futharks. Uh, angular letters that um, seem to have been ascribed magical properties. Uh, Now, there's all sorts of academic debates about the historical magical use of the runes. I believe that there's ample evidence that the runes, as we see them as pictograms, were absolutely used for magic and divination. Um, But I'm also not an academic. I, I believe that we can use history and and sort of secular academic sources to inform our practice, to make us stronger and, and, and uh, uh, more informed magicians. But my practice is primarily magical. And when I think of runes specifically, I think of the mysteries. Because runes themselves, the word translates to, to like word, letter, song, and mystery. And runic magic for me... Uh, takes place beyond just the pictograms. It is it is engagement with vast cosmic forces and the mysteries of life, and then also the mysteries of humanity. Um, one thing I like to point out is that within the the Futharks, uh, we have the rune Manas, which is uh, the the rune of of man in in the Neil Armstrong sense, the rune rune of humanity, 
and we also have our place in this graph of, 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 the, of, the, of the, the cosmos as pre-Christian Norse people uh, derived it. Um, so on one hand, we have the, the Futhark, and then we have the greater mysteries. But I find that the Futhark and the pictograms uh, are the easiest access and easiest way to engage with those greater mysteries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're the available portals to something far greater. What an answer. Epic answer. Thank you. So how would you suggest someone go about truly learning runic magic and divination? Yes. Very good question. Um, the important thing to me is for people to realize that the runes are bigger than the letters, and that the, that the pictograms you see represent something very large. And they t- seem to want to teach themselves. So the first thing I say is don't read a book. <laughs> Have primary and secondary sources available to you, particularly historical sources. So have the rune poems, which are mnemonic devices that, that certainly seem to have rune wisdom built into them, but also might have primarily been used to memorize the alphabet. Have those available to see where your, your uh, rune workers of the past have logged their wisdom. Look at uh, uh, the mythological poems, the Eddas, uh, there's a poem within the Sagas of Volsungs, uh, which my, my Icelandic is terrible, but it's roughly pronounced, I think, like Siegfried Dumont, which is like a, a manual of runic magic uh, within poetic form. But these things cannot teach you directly, and I don't think any teacher can teach you directly. I think that it takes getting the, co- the context around each specific rune, having a theoretical understanding of what they represent, but then inviting them into your life and allowing them to teach themselves to you. And that is, that is my path. And this is, if I have one thing to give the world, it is that the runes grow in your life in a personal relationship with the spirit behind them. And that this is not a theoretical relationship. It has to be practical. And this goes for divination as well. When I throw runes, the context and certain runes that I have very uh, strong personal uh, uh, resonance with will give me another, a completely different meaning than what you would read in any book. Because it's me engaging and having sort of a conversation with that individual rune. It's not Isa falls, that means ice, you're gonna slip on ice, right? Like it's something else. It depends on what it's telling me at that time. And so what I hope to teach especially when we have this very powerful tool for divination, is forget memorizing meanings, have the context, but also have the engagement and the conversation with the rune itself. It will speak to you and trust yourself that if it's giving you an answer that isn't in a book, that that answer it gives you is probably more correct than uh, the answer you see in the book. Yeah, it's called intuition, sweetie. <laughs> Look it up. It's called intuition, sweaty. <laughs> um, that being said, I always have to say, uh, one of the reasons I teach runes is they are not inherently safe. 
when you put, but it, it, they're very powerful. When you put them on things, things happen. If you draw them on an object, you bring the energy with intent. You bring the energy of that rune into the into that object, and roots can be very big. And if you don't take the time to learn and develop that relationship, preferably with good context, that's where a teacher can come in to help give you a safe context to engage with certain runes, as, as opposed to throwing you off like into the black diamond uh, 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 like expert ski ski jump mm. um, you know starting you on the bunny trail to, 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 to get to get a feel for for what is feasible and what is safe and not safe What's so the would you recommend uh, calling in your helping spirits too for Absolutely. extra yeah yeah um, because the runes are very big they're very powerful some of them represent energies that are not that are not placid, that are volatile and fiery or chaotic. And um, that's what makes them so great for divination because they can speak volumes. And that's what makes them so great for magic because you, when you throw runes on things, things happen. But also sometimes things catch fire and explode. And, 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 and it's good to know which runes make things catch fire and explode and, and how to bind them with other runes to control the energy around. Ooh, interesting. Okay, that makes sense to me because I know plenty of deities that need a little control. They need some security. So what is your approach to teaching runes and how is that different from other sources? Right, so my approach is pretty simple. I always start any class I teach uh, at any level, actually, with what do we know from an academic point of view. Not not to throw the magical baby out with the bathwater. Bath I try <laughs> not to do on either side of these things. But just to say, let's ground and look historically at some of the debates about what the runes were actually used for. Mm. Uh, there's a there's an academic runologist, he's, he's passed away, but his name is R.I. Page. Absolute brilliant expert on the runes argues that they were almost never used for magic. I disagree with him, but we still should look and see what he said because he knew a lot about this stuff that doesn't come from the I'm writing a, a magical book and I want to sell you something point of view. He's, he's, I trust the academics to be honest with me and not inject too much of their own intuition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we start there and then we start with what primary sources do we have and they're scant. So we have runestones, we have various pieces of jewelry that have been uncovered archaeologically. We look at them and we look at to see what has come before us so that we have a good grounding as far as the, as much as we know about the tradition as possible so that we can infer other things about magical tradition that may not have been written down before we get into the actual magic. And the actual magic is not throwing out the magic with, with baby with the bathwater either is about getting you into a personal relationship with the runes, helping you dialogue with the runes with a context for what they mean. And as a teacher, I have had things so many, I've made so many mistakes. Mm. I've had things blow up in my face, throwing the wrong rune onto something when I thought it meant something else. I, and so most of my value as a teacher is like 
showing all of my battle scars and saying, this is where this went wrong, this is where this went wrong. And then also, here's where it went right for me as a mm. practical mag- magician. Somebody who's not an academic, but a practical magician who's dedicated to working the runes. Trying to tell my students, okay, here's how we keep you safe so that this doesn't blow up in your face, and I'll tell you where and how it blew up in mine over and over and over again until I got good at it. Um, so we start with grounding. We say we need to at least arm ourselves with historical knowledge. And then we say also our magical knowledge should actually come from ourselves mm. within a safe context. So give, get as much context about the rune as you can. And then it becomes sort of oral tradition. And I have some of that. I, I have elders, people who taught my dad. My dad taught me uh, a couple of, uh, you know, well, I won't invoke their names here, but well-known runic authors that I've, that I've worked with who are my elders. We have sort of a, a modern oral tradition. We don't have an extant, unbroken lineage to pre-Christian Scandinavia. It may exist on farms in rural <laughs> Scandinavia and Iceland, but, but, but I don't have it in New York. Yeah. So I have some oral tradition from magicians who've been practicing since the 70s, 60s, uh, that informs me, and then I hope to pass on as much as that while also teaching people to be mindful of, of primary and secondary sources. Okay, that's great. And you also offer consultations. Yes. Um, I'll put that information in the show notes. How can people book your services? The best way to book me is at vikiarts.com. That's spelled V-I-T-K-I-A-R-T-S.com. Um there's a, a, a number of pages on there, but there's, there's a services page with uh, an email form. My newsletter is on there as well. Um, I'm also on Instagram at, uh, at Vicky Arts. Uh, people can reach out to me there. It's probably not the best way to book, um, but it's a good way to keep in touch. Mm. Yes, so follow, especially for any possible upcoming classes. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, I don't have dates yet right now, but I'm planning to run a very... I think it's my most popular class. I call it Approaching the Runes. Um, it's primarily an introductory online course. I do you know, a series of webinars. Mm-hmm. We go over the runes, and it, it's mostly for people who want to get started with the runes or people who have started with the runes who want to understand a little bit more about what I'm talking about when I talk about dialoguing with the runes personally and bringing them into your life. Yeah. So... I, it's, it's an introductory course. It's pretty, uh, it's heavy, especially at first on those academic materials because I want everybody to start from square one and, and, and know their context. Um, but people seem to really like it and people who might not be dedicated to doing runes. I I do intensive as well for people who, who are like, this is my life. I want to walk this path. I have some more intensive courses and usually more one-on-one courses for them. But people who might not be dedicated to the runes but want to grow with them and bring them into their practice uh, and, and do so in a, in a really sustainable, strong way, approaching the runes is, is very good. And I'll be teaching a, a, it's, it's, it's a um, four-week course, and I'll be teaching that this, this winter in a couple months, probably December. And then I have another webinar I'm putting together on the history and use of necromancy in pre-Christian uh, Scandinavian magic. Ooh. Uh, yeah, because, because runic magic is so full of what we would call necromancy, but it doesn't look as 
it, it doesn't in the sources we have it's not as diabolical um, it, it's more it, it's more just a given right Odin calls the, the 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 shade of a dead witch when he needs to have divination done for him things like that mm. it's just kind of par for the course I am gonna definitely look out for that one yeah. I'm really excited about it well thank you Phil so much for coming on the show it was so great to have you I appreciate your time thank you and stay Mystic witches? <laughs> Let me do it again. This is stay mystic, keep it with I'm mystic. so keeping though, that was perfect. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Mystic Witch on any of your favorite platforms. And you can show your support by contributing monthly at anchor.fm or on our Patreon page. Follow us on social media to hear exclusive audio clips from our guests at Mystic Witch Podcast.